Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Well, good morning, Grace. It's good to be back. I've been on vacation. If you've been visiting here, this is, I'm usually the person who teaches. Um, I just had a great time off. So there, Um, thank you for uh, the help of providing some substitutes. Hey, we're starting our series on Explore God today. Now, you've probably seen some billboards around town that say Explore God and might have heard some um, advertisements on the radio and maybe even seen some of the interviews that are taking place on the uh, news stations. Uh, Over 300 churches are involved in a a very similar series. We're going through together anywhere from four to seven weeks together and uh, studying these same and similar topics. Really nothing like this has happened in Austin anyway, ever in, in the city's history. So this is a pretty interesting time to to be here in the great city of Austin. We're, let me give you an outline for Explore God, and then, I'll, and then we'll get right into our learning time today. It, we're going to start our series today, and it'll be about, is the Bible reliable? And then from there, we're going to go to, does life have a purpose? In other words, is there something calling from in us, or maybe even outside of us, uh, for something more or greater? We gotta, is there something that makes us want to be more than you know, comfortable mammals, the, the proudest monkey, comfortably numb, whatever, whatever we might aspire to. Is, isn't human mean to be more than that? And then we're going to look at, well, okay, if that's true, maybe, does God exist? Maybe he's an ex, you know, a supernatural being is why we have this longing for something more. And then the question that follows that immediately is, if God is good, then why, why does evil even exist? And that is the bedrock of atheism or people that have difficulty believing in God. That's the question that they want answered. And then the question that would follow that, of course, would be, can we even know God uh, personally? Can we ha- if he exists and all that is true, has some way of knowing him uh, been, ar- been arranged? And then we're going to look at uh, who is Jesus, what makes Jesus so special, what are the claims that make Christianity different? And we're going to make this uh, an unforgettable series for us. I mean, we're having Mumford and Sons and Dave Matthews come join us. That's not really true. Um, <laughs> but I just thought it would sound really cool, you know, if, if we had two big bands here. But we won't. We won't do that. We're just going to do it regular. Um, <clears throat> but I'll tell you what we are going to do. The last week, the, what makes Jesus special, what makes him different, we are going to bring in a friend that's a very gifted individual. His name is Cliff Connectly. Now, Cliff is uh, a pastor in Connecticut, but he also is a you know, best-selling author. But he tra- what's fun about him is he travels around the country. He's been doing it for maybe 20 or 30 years now, almost pro- over 25 years for sure. And he goes to campuses and gives a little five-minute speech you know, every day for a week, sometimes 10 days. And then, and then he just says, do you have any questions? He just opens it up for questions. And it, he goes to the the campuses that give him the most grief and the most hostility and throwback. And of course, the University of Texas is one of those. So he's been coming down here for, and that's how I met him. And so he's coming, he's going to preach that Sunday, September 29th, and then he's going to stay over and we're going to have a Q&A with him. And I want you to, if you have any questions about these uh, six lessons, I want you to bring them and, and Cliff is going to answer them for you. I will not be answering your questions. Cliff will be. Uh, I would very much encourage you to ask a friend of that. It, gets, it, it is exciting when people go back and forth. He's heard it all, seen it all, kind of done it all. So he won't be afraid and need not fear for him. Anyway, that's our outline. And, and what the, the big idea of the whole series all around the city is to just present to people, I guess, this basic value. That, that 
that the faith claims of Christianity are reasonable. It, it, there, you don't, one of the things I love about our church is you don't have to leave your brain in the parking lot. You can come in here and we can talk about things and we can think about these things. And, they, and you don't have to believe everything, but you, you would hopefully at the end of the day say, you know what, that, it's not blind faith. It's, it makes some sense to me. And, and if all those faith claims are, are attached to logic or history or, or reason, then maybe there's something in it. Okay, I, um, what God does in your heart is between you and God, but what we can do is, is reason together. You know, I mean, Jesus says, come and see. That's one of his major invitations in the gospel. Just, just come and see. And I think that's the theme of this series. Now, we're going to start today, and we're going to look at, is the Bible reliable? And the reason we're going to start with that topic is simply because we're going to use the Bible as a source of authority in weeks to come. And, it's, and I don't want you to believe that the Bible's true because, well, we're just going to assume that. We can't assume that. We're going to, um, use, we're going to have to make sure that it's, it's at least credible or reasonable to believe some of the history or the claims in this book if we're going to use them in future weeks as a reference point, okay? Now, I've, I've had a love-hate relationship with this book, I can tell you. Uh, when... I think it would be fair to say, it probably wouldn't be an exaggeration, up until my 20th birthday, every single decision I made was utterly selfish. I mean, I, I, everything I chose was about me getting ahead or getting what I wanted. And it was, it was in the middle of that 20th year that I, I had a lot of bills to pay. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And then someone came and invaded my life and told me about the claims of Jesus Christ and how he had come to set me free from, from myself, honestly, the cost of, of my arrogance, and, and paid for my sins. And he said, hey, and, and there's this thing, the Bible. You should read the Bible. It's from God. And I, I grabbed that book, and I used to sleep with it. And I was, and I, I was, I got to tell you, I was just, I had faith in nothing. I had faith in faith that it was God's word, right? I mean, I just wanted it to be true. I was on a rebound. If you know about relationships, I was on a rebound from a previous set of values where I was the middle of everything and getting whatever I wanted, and it was killing me. And so if someone comes along and says, oh, this is from God, and it will heal your soul, I, I, okay, I want that to be true, and so my, my relationship with the Bible, God's Word, was infatuation. It was puppy love. It was simple and stupid. And, and that served me for a few months, about a year or so. And then um, I shouldn't have done this, but then I went to graduate school in, to get a, a master's degree in theology. And, and the, honest, the very first class I took was an hour and a half of the professor on a whiteboard filling two whiteboards with all the things that are wrong with the Bible. And he just shredded this thing on, you know, apparent contra- uh, contradictions and whether we can believe the history or not and how scientifically it's, it's, it's wrong and all those sorts of things. And the whole hour and a half, and at the end, I was, I was good for nothing. I mean, this, my love affair with the Bible, the puppy love, it was gone. And I walked him back to his, his uh, office, and I started crying and just said, well, I think I've made a terrible mistake. You know, I've come here to learn more about this and to believe in this. And he goes, well, what do you, what do you believe? What do you, he's, I said, because the Bible says it's from God. And he said, so the Bible says it's from God, so it's from God? I mean, that's circular reasoning. There's four other books that they say they're from God. That's not faith. That's faith in faith. And I said, well, okay. 
And he said, no, look, just to relax, we're going to spend the rest of the semester looking at all of those issues that we put on the whiteboard, and we're going to resolve those. And I said, you could have said that in class, (laughs) professor, you know, (laughs) that would have been really nice. Uh, So we did. We spent the next, you know, four months looking at every, you know, possible uh, that you could imagine uh, complaint about the validity of the Bible. And now my faith was strengthened by reason. Now logic and, and, you know, the, the gray matter was counting towards loving something more reasonably. But there was still something rattling around in me. I couldn't figure it out. Honestly, there was unsettled. And when I came to Austin, one of the first things I was able to, excuse me, involve myself in was a a radio show here in town on KLBJ, the talk talk, uh, station. It was called Christian Encounter. And what we would do for about three and a half, about three years or so, we would would get um, an expert in some field, hard sciences, you know, biology, science, astrophysics, that sort of thing, and soft sciences, philosophy, that sort of thing. And we'd get them on, on the line. And then we would just open it up to the rest of the city of Austin and say, hey, what questions do you have in regard to these issues? And so for an hour, sometimes two hours on special nights, we would just have people from all over Central Texas call these men and women, and they would, they would be kind of asked the hardest and most difficult issues they could, they could uh, deal with. It was, it was enlightening. And some of those questions had to do with the reliability of the Bible. And, and so after three years, you can imagine, um, I was strengthened to believe that my faith was quite reasonable and made great sense. And it didn't require me to take a huge leap of faith, but there was still something unsettled. And, and then uh, something strange. I, I don't even remember why, but I read a book by G.K. Chesterton. He's a British writer and um, he helped influence C.S. Lewis to become a follower of Jesus Christ. He's that important in, in his writings. And he wrote a book called Orthodoxy. And the theme of Orthodoxy is that Chesterton was a little bit annoyed with what he'd been seeing in religions and, and in the church. And he said, you know what? I know what's true. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to write my own religion. I'm going to invent my own religion based on the facts that I know that are certain. And that's the, that's the theme of the book of Orthodoxy. So each chapter he says, well, I know this is true. And so this is what, this is what that religion would look like. And then at the end of the chapter he goes, and then I realized it's what God had done. And it was called Christianity. Well, okay, okay, and then this fact I know to be true, and this is what religion would follow those sets of facts, and then I realized that's just what God did, and that's called Christianity. And so for like eight chapters, he's, eight chapters, he's trying to invent something that already exists. And the idea here is there's a, there's a point where, you know, you can be defensive about your faith, and, and you can only get a certain degree of resolution, but when you take the offense and say, you know what? What would you do if you were God? How would you make things work out? Something, there's, something else happens to you when you have to put things in order so that you could show God a thing or two. So if, if you wouldn't mind, just uh, with a degree of, of disrespect, what would you do? And this is what I do sometimes when I'm having conversations and I've answered so many questions. Now I'll just say, you know what, what would you do if you were the God of the universe and you wanted to leave a book behind that, that you would know, right? You would see ahead of time and you would see that people for thousands of years, right? Millennia would be calling that book 
God's holy word. Would you, would you do that? Sure, you would, you, would, you would want to leave something behind that would explain what the nature of God is, uh, how we should live our lives in, in light of how we are made, right, how we're designed, and, and what happens after death. Those are the big questions of life. If you're God, you would want to tell people the answers to the big questions of life. Right, you would do that. And you would make sure what? You would make sure certain things were reasonable for people to believe. And so, you know, you would, you would have what, what I would call internal quality control. And internal quality control would be when, when you told someone to write it down and then it was copied, it was copied effectively, right? So because you wouldn't want it to be disintegrating in, it, in its meaning over the years, right? So you would make sure that would happen. And then you would have external verifications that your book, right, if you're God, that your book is, is standing completely different from these other four or five books that will come along and say, yeah, these are from God. And so you use outside verifications like history and prophecy to say, no, this is different. This is written by God. And so you would do that. You would do that for the love of creation, and you would do that for the love of the logic and the reason, the the gray matter you put in people's heads. And so that's what I'm proposing for you today. When we look at, is the Bible reasonable, I'm going to throw this thing around and say, what would you do if you were God? How would you make sure people would know that it doesn't take a huge jump of faith to believe that that is from you. Well, let's look at that, if you would. I mean, one of the first things you'll deal with, people are going to say this about, about the Bible, about your words, right? It's just men, right? I mean, how good could it be if it's just men? I mean, men are, 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 uh, are wrong, and, and, they, and they're not perfect, and so you can have a perfect word. I'd say, well, if you're God, couldn't you make men work I mean, you could, you could get a drunk monkey to write it down, couldn't you? You're God. So I have no problems personally when people say, well, it's, it's, it's men, how perfect could it be? It's like, because it's God, that's why. And so I, you can use styles to communicate truth. And there's parts of the Bible that God uses the personality, the history, the bad spelling and grammar in people's lives, but the, but the truth is still true, even though the spelling's wrong or the grammar's misplaced. There's other times where, he, where God dictates, because that's what you would do, where he'd say, Moses, write this down. Isaiah, get this clear. And there's, a, there's one time in, in the Bible, it happens twice, but it's one time where God writes it himself, the Ten Commandments. He doesn't tell Moses to write this down. He, God writes it down. Moses slams one into the ground and shatters it, and he goes, okay, I'll write it down again for you. Because civilizations will be built on the bedrock of these ten words. So I'll write them, thank you. And that's how God used man. That's what you would do, and that's how God did it. That's how he used man to write his words. It's reasonable. I think most people would do that. That's what God did. Now let's look at what what I call internal quality control. Once it's been written down, the question becomes, how can we be sure that what we have in our hands today, like right now, is even remotely accurate to what was originally written down 10, you know, I don't know, a a thousand years ago, 4,000, 5,000 years ago. You'd want to make sure, first of all, that it's written down perfectly and copied perfectly. And then second, you'd want what? You'd, You'd want that standard to be so far above all other books of antiquity that there would be little reasonable doubt 
about whether or not it's actually authentic, whether it's really from God. Now, here's the biggest rub with people when it comes to copying the copy, the copy, 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 right? People say, oh, it's how good could it be? It's, you know, the telephone game, the gossip game, the whisper game, you know, that game where we start over here with David and David, I say to David, uh, uh, tell your friends next to you, park the car in the barnyard. And so David says, I got that, park the car in the barnyard. And then he tells the guy next to him and he tells the person next to them and they're, and they're working down the row here. And then right smack in the middle is some guy from Boston, right? He can't do ours. He just, they can't do the ours. Park the car in the barnyard. And it's not his fault in many respects, but it keeps going down at the end and, and it gets to the end and the person says, I have no idea. He said, ba-ba, ba-ba, ba-ba. <laughs> we all laugh. This is a fun game. It's telephone. And they turn it on you and say, and that's how the Bible is. It's copied, 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 copied. But here's the thing. The telephone game is, well, it's a game. It's a lot of fun because it has no consequence and it's what's being communicated, one. And two, there's no consequence to the person that's, that's transmitting the le- the words. Let's, let's play it a different way. Let's, let's start with David again. And I say, and let's assume this is to be true because it matters. The cure to cancer is to drink water. Wow. That's a message that's important. And two, if you don't translate it accurately, I will hit you with 10,000 volts of a cattle prod. Wow. Now there's a consequence to the message delivery people. So David starts and he says, <laughs> he says, the cure to cancer is to drink water. And everybody's trying to get this right because they don't want to get hit by the prod and they want to make sure that the lesson's true because it can save lives. But halfway we get to the Boston person and he says what? Well, now he's talking like a Midwest anchorman, right? All right he's getting his R's right now. The cure... To cancer is to drink water. And when it gets to the end, we get a message that's true and clear. Now, the reason I say that is because when, we, when you look at the Old Testament scribes and their attitude towards copying the copies, it's more like this cancer message. It's life and death for them. It's not a game. They, most of these men have been bred for this one purpose. They get to be a scribe that copies. And there are, there are pages of rules in the old, when you're translating or when you're copying the Old Testament, those manuscripts, there are pages of rules of how to dress, how to bathe, what to wear, what type of skins to use, what types of thread to use on those skins. But friends, look, there's a, there's a, there's a recipe for the ink. It's just alone. Just the ink has a recipe that's sacred and set apart. They, they can't copy a word. It's not a word-for-word word copy. It is a letter-by-letter, letter, even what's called a yod, which is like an apostrophe. So if the words were like dogs, possessive, right, dogs, the, the, the scribe would have to go D, D, O, O, G, G, apostrophe, apostrophe, S, S. Now, these men have all memorized these books. These, they, they could memorize the word dogs, but they can't. They can't copy it that way. Look, just the rules in writing the word Lord. First of all, you can't say the word in Hebrew. You, you, can, you can't even think it in many respects. And so this is Yahweh. And so they, when, they can't write that word with a freshly dinked, dipped pen because it might blot on that holy word. 
And while they're doing word, letter for letter for letter, it says that if, if the king himself were to come in your room while you're writing his name and calls you out, you do not lift your head. That's a pretty big commitment to making copies of copies of copies because, because you'd be God and you'd want everybody to know that those texts are reliable. You'd want people to know, look, you can trust these texts. Absolutely. So, I mean, William Green writes this. Here's a quote. He's a famous scholar. He says, look, he concludes, it may be safely said that no other work of antiquity has been so accurately transmitted. Look, I'll just prove this to you. History. History is fun to validate the reliability of the Old Testament texts. In March of 1947, a little shepherd boy, his name is Mohammed. That is not a Jewish name. One of his sheep go up, uh, it's over by the Dead Sea in the Qumran area, and, and, and one of his sheep go up into this cave, and he doesn't want to go up there, doesn't want to mess with it, so he throws a rock in there to scare the sheep out. But he hears this crash, and he realizes there's something up there, and so he goes in there, and the floor is lined with these uh, cisterns, and inside of them are perfectly preserved Old Testament scripts. Now, listen, this happened in 1947. And they were able to date these manuscripts to 200 B.C. So listen, there is, there's 2,000 years between when this shepherd boy finds it and when these were originally written. Now, here's the important part. The most recent manuscripts we had in 1947 at the time were, 900, were uh, from 900 A.D., Okay, so those were the last, those were the oldest ones we had. So the point is, there was 1,100 years between, right, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written and when these manuscripts that we actually already had. So for 1,100 years, we had copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. For over 1,000 years, okay, this is going to be a mess, right? Right? Park the car in the barnyard. Will never make sense. So they take one chapter out of Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 53. They find almost absolutely no flaws. They find a few. And here's what Gleason Archer, he has, he's a PhD in classics. Here's what he says. He says, he says, this proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible and more than 95% of the text. Now, the 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen or variations in spelling. After a thousand-year break, we can compare. That's why these scrolls are in a museum in Jerusalem this day, because it validated that, that, if you make, that if you make this a religious act of copying these manuscripts, you'll have, you'll have accurate manuscripts. Now, the New Testament is not like the Old Testament. We don't have very many manuscripts, but the ones we have, we don't doubt. New Testament, it's like we have thousands of manuscripts because of the persecutions of the Christians. They just kept copying over and over and over and passing them on to other people. And, and again, let's just compare what would you do if you were God. You'd have them written everywhere in every language, as many as possible, right? And so if you look at those and you compare them to other manuscripts that we, we you and I would say, oh yeah, Plato's Republic, we roll it out like we know what's, what, what's true in that. Or Aristotle, what, the teachings of Aristotle. But look, friends, in the teachings of Plato and Aristotle, from when they were alive in about two or 300 B.C. to the manuscripts we actually have is a 1,400-year gap. 
In other words, we don't have anything remotely close to the original things written. There's 1,400 years between what we have and what they wrote. And even with that, there's only a handful of manuscripts. Plato, we only have seven, and Aristotle, only 49. And coming in second place, ladies and gentlemen, is Homer's Iliad. Now, Homer wrote, but there was a, what, a, about a nine or 500-year gap between when Homer wrote and, this, and the scripts of parchment that we have. But we do have 643 of those. So that's pretty good. Now, let's see what our first place finisher is. It's the New Testament. There are 24,000 manuscripts or pieces of the New Testament that we have to look from. And those were written between 40 and 70 years of the original authorship. Now, here's why that's important. That's so much weightier than you can imagine. Because 40 to 70 years is, is within a person's lifetime. Now, here's why, that, here's why you need to understand this. If I say, if, I, if, I, if I'm writing something down and say, and Jesus said that cats are better than dogs, then someone could say, wait a minute, I was at the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say anything about cats. I, I guarantee he didn't say anything about cats. And he didn't say they were good. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm not saying that's in the Bible, but I'm just saying. So, so within 40 to 70 years, the people that heard Jesus teach were still alive when they were reading the texts of the Gospels and the New Testament writings and the epistles. And now we have so many of them. So the bottom line is this. I mean, look at this quote from F.F. F. Bruce. There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. Right? I mean, it's not even, it's friends. The point is this, is that when, when you look at the manuscripts that we have, we don't have originals that were penned by Moses, but we have copies of those. And when you hold those in your hands, you can say, you know what? These are very close to being perfectly like the originals. And, and you know what? You, and it's reasonable to believe that. That's what you would do. That's what God did. Now, let's look at external sources. Again, there's other books. There's about five books that say, say they're from God. But what are you going to do if you were God to say, Wait, whoa, this is a lot different than those other books. Other books are going to come along, but I want to validate what I say is from me. What would you use? You'd splatter that book with history, wouldn't you? And then you'd use prophecy to make the magic happen. And so you look at the Bible and you say, okay, it uses, it uses definitive words like civilizations and countries and people, I mean, he names kings, he names uh, coinage, and the price of certain things like slaves. All those have been verified by extra-biblical, non-Christian, non-believing scientists have verified those facts. And when those facts don't line up, I have personally, I have just said, you know what, I'll just wait. Because I, just like scientists will wait, if they don't have the information, they'll just say, they'll wait. And they have enough information to say, boy, that looks like this is believable. Let's, let's see. It's, here's an example. Um, for at least 100 years, people doubted right, the, um, the historicity, rather the, uh, the reliability of the four Gospels, the stories of Jesus, right? Because they mention a guy named Pontius Pilate. And there's no evidence in the world that Pontius Pilate ever existed. And he's a pretty major player in the end of Jesus' life, right? And so since there's, it's not historically verifiable, maybe who, what else in that story is made up? Well, in 1961, 
Just north of Tel Aviv at uh, Caesarea by the sea, there's this giant mound of sand. It's a sand dune, and, they, and, and there, a storm comes in and blows some stuff away. They find a rock, and then they blow all the sand away, and they find an outdoor amphitheater. I swear, under right this giant sand dune, they find that amphitheater. That's a, that's a big amphitheater to hide. And, and one of the major cornerstones in that amphitheater is a dedication stone carved in this amphitheater that dates back to the first century, and it says this. It's a dedication stone to the divine Augusti from Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judah, and I have dedicated this to you. I mean, it mentions his name in stone. People, de- people de- uh, doubted for 200 years that David actually was a person. It was more like a, a Camelot experience, that there was no real king like that. And then 1993, in many of our lifetime, in 1993, they find a stone that's engraved that says, My beloved, the king of God, right there in Israel. In July 18th, 2013, that's this year, okay? July 18th, they found a palace in the middle of Judea, right, in, in, in the area of Israel, that has turned out to be David's center country palace. And right now it's still, I mean, the ground is still kind of being worked on, but a lot of scholars believe it. It's David's palace. So to verify the history of the, of the book, to make it set apart from other books that are from God, I would use a lot of history. You would use a lot of history. You'd use archaeology to prove it to be true. God did that. But nothing does it like prophecy, and there is no book ever penned by a human hand that is even remotely close to the prophecy that's brought up in the Bible. Now, what prophecy means this. If you were God, you would see what's going to happen in the future, and then you'd tell someone in the present what's going to happen, and you would be extreme in your details, and then you would watch it happen. You would make it happen. You'd use people that didn't want it to happen, happen, cause it to happen. And then you could sit and watch. But... (laughs) As God, you'd enjoy that. As a person who wants to believe that this is God's word, it would validate that there's a a God that's in charge and he's making things happen. Let me give you, there's thousands of prophecies in the the Bible that have been very specifically fulfilled. Here's one that I I particularly like. It's about a a city called Tyre. And Tyre mocks Jerusalem when they're being uh, destroyed. And so God pronounces a judgment on them. And in Ezekiel chapter 26, there's, there's about six judgments. Let me just rattle through them really quickly. Uh, the, the, the declaration goes like this. Nebuchadnezzar will destroy the mainland city. The debris of that city will be thrown into the sea. The city of Tyre will become like a bare rock. Many nations will come and they'll attack Tyre. The city would never be rebuilt again. And fishermen, fishermen will spread their nets on that site. Really? Okay. And so fishermen, I love that one. And then you'll be good for fishnets. Very specific. Three years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and destroys the city of Tyre. Now, this is called the old city of Tyre because Tyre, if you look at the map, it is, it is on the mainland. And, and when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and, and breaks down the walls and, and looks for the people, they're all gone because they have fled to the island city of Tyre. And now they're living out on this fortified city with huge walls all the way around it, and they're just kind of laughing at Nebuchadnezzar. And none of the other prophecies really happened, right? He didn't throw the the waste into the sea, and the people weren't utterly destroyed. There's people not using their land for fishnets until 240 years later. 
Alexander the Great is coming down. I think he's conquering the Persians at this time. And Tyre is, is a point of contention because they're out. That little, that little island city of Tyre is about a half a mile off the coast. And they realize that no one can touch them. And so when Alexander comes down and he looks across that channel, they just kind of, you know, we spit in your general direction. And they mock Alexander. And so Alexander says, we're not leaving until this place is rubble. And so he takes the remnants of old city Tyre, because there's no way to get to the island city of Tyre. He takes the remnants of the old city of Tyre and uses those rocks and throws them into the sea to build a jetty, a causeway 200 feet across all the way to the front gate. And then he builds battering rams, and then the the Navy ships come in from other countries. Other countries come in to help because they're told to, and they obliterate the island city of Tyre. And so, so what happens now? Well, it's gone, and the old city is just a bare rock. And let me just read a quote from you, if you don't mind. Uh, this is from, I think it's Encyclopedia Britannica. Philip Myers, he's just a non-follower of God in any way. He's just a historian. He says, the larger part of the site of the old great city is now a bear as a top of a rock. And it's a, oddly enough, it's a place where fishermen still frequent to, sp- to spread their nets to dry. Six very specific <laughs> predictions made in the book that were fulfilled by people like Nebuchadnezzar, just in the hand of God, and Alexander the Great. Look, in Jesus' life, he fulfills over 330 prophecies that he had nothing to do with. He couldn't fulfill them if he wanted to, like being born in Bethlehem, like being out of, of Egypt, like growing up in Nazareth. Those are just three. That's what you would do if you had a thought about what you could do to verify your book if you were God. Look, you're a little, what, smarter than a turtle, a little dumber than an angel, But you'd do that, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. And that's just what God did. God did that and so much more. This is about a two or three hour lesson. I'm 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 trying to do this in 36 minutes. You're welcome. (laughs) God wants you to have something in writing so that you would know with a certain degree of reason that this speaks about what the nature of God is, about how you should live your life by design and what eternity holds for you. And he wants you to have faith because he's left you ample evidence to, to believe that the manuscripts are, are as, he just, as he had them to be written. And, there, and, and there's evidence in history. In the ground, there's proof. And if, if all else fails, then these prophecies that can only be explained by a God who runs the universe and plans the histories before mankind. And so I guess there's kind of like two applications that I have for everybody in the audience. One is, is if you're one of these people that are investigating the truths of, of the Bible, I would, here's all I want you to believe. It's just like it's, it's not far-reaching to believe that there is a book left from God. You would do that. You'd leave something to help us understand who God is, how to live, what eternity is, right? There is such a book, and it stands different from the other books. Not all religions are the same. There's one that has a book that has a lot of reason. So I want you to just kind of move a little step towards saying, you know what? I don't have to leave my brain in the car. I don't have to be just kind of faith in faith. 
These blind leaps aren't so, I guess, extravagant. And for you that have already committed your life to Jesus Christ, if this book is true, you should live a life where it backs into these truths. In other words, you should make decisions in your life to where you every once in a while go, wait a minute, is this thing true? Because I'm rearranging my ambitions, right? My job, my parenting style, my relationships, conversations I have, it affects that middle part, how you should live by design. So I find myself going back, oh, yeah, it must be from God. So I'm going to do, we've made, people in this room, we've made serious decisions about our careers, about what we do with money. There's There's some people here that have made decisions in relationships because the Bible said so. The Bible doesn't talk about knowing the Bible. The the Bible talks a lot about doing the Bible. One of the best sermons ever given, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Hill. It's several chapters, and then Jesus ends it like this. He says there's two types of people. (laughs) It sounds familiar, right? Um, Last week. Uh, Two types of people. There are types of people that hear my words that I just taught you about the nature of God, about how you should live, about what eternity looks like, and then they build their house on sand, and then the... I don't know, the rains come and the winds blow and the floodwaters come up and they just wipe the houses down. Wait, what? You, I heard it. What's wrong with that? And then there's this other group of people that they hear the words that I spoke about the nature of God, about how to live and the, the eternity that awaits them, and they do it. And those people that do it are people that build their house on a rock, and when the winds come and the rains come down and the floodwaters come up and, it, and that storm hits that house, it's on a rock-solid foundation, and they're good. So, listen, many of us, the, the problem we have with Christianity is Christians. And the problem we have with Christians is not that they know their Bibles. That might be an issue. But primarily, they're not doing what the Bible says. And so, I, if God... I'm trying to back this up a little bit. If God did all these things to validate that this is true, then the only thing keeping us from doing it is our will. And God wanted us to be sure because there's some things written in here that are honestly, they're just too good to be true. And you can't believe it. They're like, you know, like salvation is not going to be up to you. It'll be up to you just trusting that Jesus paid for your sins. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. It says it in here. There's promises in here that are too good to be true. We sang about them, right? We said that he will never leave you or forsake you. It says that in here several times. So uh, the point is, you know, when the, when the voices start in your head, right, and they're so, they're like wind socks. They're blowing back and forth to various emotions, and, and there's no way to live a life that way. This book is the ballast of your life, and he says, this is true. I don't care what the voices say. I don't care what my mom says, my boss says, whatever it might be, myself. I hate myself. This comes in and says, the king of the universe sent his son for you. Live that way. There's some things in this book that are hard to apply. They'll, if, if, you, if you play it out, I know a lot of people, a fair amount of people that have left people that they deeply love and they were going somewhere with and they were probably going to get married and that book said, be careful. You guys are building from two completely different blueprints. You're not, you cannot build a family and a marriage on two different blueprints. So you need to end this. 
And that, that's a difficult thing to do. You, you don't follow it. You don't follow the word of God because it works. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's working. You don't do it because it feels good. Sometimes it doesn't feel good. You do it because it's true. You do it because God says, I'll reward you later. And later's a long time. It's for eternity. So those are the two applications. If you're new to the game, please, could you take one step towards, hey, it's not a bad thing to believe in this. And if, you're, if you've been around, live in a way that can only be explained by a passage in that book from God. Okay? Let's pray to that end. I'm going to pray for our, our school time. We start school. Most, many people start school tomorrow. <laughs> we need some prayers. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're, uh, first, I, uh, I mean no disrespect in, in acting like if I were you, I would do things a certain way. You do them any way you want. But Lord, I am grateful and glad that you've left so much evidence and, and these things like prophecy so that we can know with a, a greater degree of certainty that you have communicated with creation. And you've told us about you and how to live and where we'll spend life and the choices that we have and how very important these choices are. So God, help us grasp these things and do these things. Lord, we, uh, so many people are starting school tomorrow and I first lift up the school teachers and administrators and I'd ask that you would bless them with a vision for what's real. That they would see themselves as, as shepherd to sheep, as pastors to, to little people, as, as kings to people that want to serve you. I'd ask that you'd give them a vision for that. They have in their classroom young souls that require love and truth. I'd ask that you would bless them and give them strength and, and power to radiate joy. I pray that they would see even the parents of the children as people that they can care for. Lord, I'd, I'd ask uh, that you would bless this thing called um, Explore God, that we would explore you and enjoy you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.